discover more compassionate relations with human beings, but how can we develop compassionate relations with the other creatures with whom we share this planet? There's an us before the wound, there's an us before oppression, and let to be pleasure is a way that we tap down into that. Welcome back to the Total Liberation Podcast. It is Mexi, and today I am releasing the audio portion of the stream that I did uh, just this past weekend with Marxist, feminist, and anti-imperialist activists Esperanza Fonseca and Cara Jabola Carlos. They are members of the transnational feminist and anti-imperialist organization Affirm, which is led primarily by BIPOC survivors of the sex trade. And we have a very thorough conversation about the global sex trade and look at it from a historical materialist perspective, a feminist perspective. And I think this conversation is incredibly important, which is why I'm sharing it on this platform as well. This platform does get a lot more engagement than our sex stream channel, simply because um, this has been running for several years and the sex stream channel is quite new. But I realized that we have never actually addressed this topic on this platform. And I know that I've made comments kind of fleetingly, uh, you know, critical comments about John's. I made a critical comment about John's on the previous episode that we did on the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard debacle, (laughs) the Depp defamation trial. And I thought it would be important to actually explain why I make comments like that and really dig into a systemic critique that I personally think is missing in um, the liberal feminist discourse and that I think is just incredibly important. So uh, I hope that you enjoy this conversation. I was going to shout out the patrons, the new patrons for this month, but as this is certainly a a quite divisive topic, I think I will hold off in case people... um, don't want their names attached to this episode. Um, Again, I I, I think it's incredibly important, but um, I will just shout out the Patreon anyway. If you would like to support the show, you can become a monthly donor at patreon.com slash total liberation. You can join our Discord server where we have bi-monthly political chats, or you can give us a one-time tip or donation by PayPal on our website, totalliberationpodcast.com. Or share the episode with friends and family to increase its reach and give us ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. I also make mention of a fundraiser at the start of the stream, as you will hear, and I've linked that in the description box below. I am still trying to raise funds for a good friend of mine, a community organizer in Toronto who is very desperate to exit the sex trade. And we've raised a lot of money so far. I'm extremely pleased with how much we've raised. But as I mentioned, um, we had to we had to raise the goal for an unforeseen reason. And so yes, I'll, I'll I get into this again. So I won't repeat myself, but I will link that in the description box below. So thanks again. And let's get into the stream. Hello everyone, welcome to the stream. Hey Catherine, yes, I'm also so excited for this. 
I am here with two amazing organizers that I respect the absolute hell out of, Cara and Esperanza of the transnational feminist and anti-imperialist organization Affirm, which is led primarily by BIPOC survivors of the sex trade. So I will let you both introduce yourselves in a moment and talk a bit about your work. Um, I just wanted to start by um, getting eyes on this fundraiser that I have been organizing. Um, let me just try to share my screen really quickly. Here we go. So um, you might have seen me talk about this before, but I'm organizing this fundraiser on behalf of a community organizer in Toronto who is trying to exit the sex trade. Um, after yet another assault from a John, she just can no longer uh, continue in this industry that she no longer wants to be, be in. So we're trying to make enough money to help her get through to September when she'll get another installment of OSAP funding for school. She's trying to finish school while looking for other work, but it's been made really difficult because um, she is a disabled woman and she's also visibly trans and experiencing discrimination in the hiring process. So we've, we've raised a lot of money so far, and I really want to thank everyone who has donated and shared. It's absolutely amazing. We've actually had to raise the goal um, because she was hit with an unexpected, very large expense. So anything that you have, even five, ten dollars um, is amazing, goes a really long way. And um, if not, just sharing it also goes a really long way as well. So I just wanted to bring that up. Um, at the, the start of the stream. Um, I also want to say up front that although we will be extremely critical of the sex trade today, as you can probably tell from the title and the um, description, um, you know, it's, it's sad that this needs to be said, although the discourse around this is generally quite terrible, but, um, you know, we are fiercely, fiercely in support of the workers themselves, the people who are in the trade. Um, and we actually want to highlight the voices of the most marginalized who are often not at all given a voice in the mainstream discourse, which tends to be quite Western, white, liberal, <laughs> all the rest. So just wanted to say that up front. Um, and with that said, Esperanza and Cara, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Uh, would you like to just briefly introduce yourselves and talk a bit about your work? Do you want to start, Cara? <laughs> no, but <laughs> I will. <laughs> Aloha, everyone. Uh, my name is Kara Jabola Krolis. I am a co-founder of Affirm Hawaii, which I hope you're all familiar with online. Um, but I'm also the executive director of the Hawaii State Commission on the Status of Women, which is a feminist government agency in Hawaii. And I think we have some sort of kindred connection to you folks um, and Mexi because we uh, worked a lot on pivoting away from um, capitalism and using this moment during COVID to really open up that conversation in the mainstream um, feminist discourse. So it's great to be with you today, but I'll keep it short and um, pass it over to Esperanza. Yeah, and hi everyone. Uh, my name is Esperanza. I'm a member of the organization Affirm. Um, and just so folks know, that is an anti-imperialist, transnational feminist organization. We are anti-fascist. We are anti-militarism, which includes um, the militarization of our communities through the imperialist police, the military. We oppose that vehemently. Um, and then we are also, of course, anti-patriarchal. Um, 
and I'm also a survivor of the sex for profit industry and a transgender woman and do a lot of writing around those two things. Um, but really happy to be here with you, Maxi. So thanks for inviting us again. Yeah, thank you both. Like I said, I've been following both of your work for so long, and I've just been so, just so grateful to have your voices in the public sphere because, like I said, the discourse can get quite <laughs> uh, jumbled. I, I would say. Um, so to start off, I want to say. Um, I wanted to highlight, Kara, the work, the amazing work that you've done recently um, in Hawaii. You were very instrumental in helping to secure $2,000 per month for up to one year uh, for sex trade survivors um, and survivors of sex trafficking, which is absolutely amazing and something that should be available to everyone. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the work that it took to make that happen and then direct it at both of you. Um, just wondering if you could talk about the importance and the necessity of funding exit programs. Yeah, thanks for the shout out. Um, so, you know, we were Hawaii, Affirm Hawaii is the only organization that has an emergency fund with no strings attached for people trying to survive the the military prostitution complex here. And, you know, we just were overwhelmed with the amount of people asking for, you know, whether it be um, like baby supplies or maternity clothes or rent just um, or medication or hospital bills. And we knew that it wasn't sustainable at that kind of level, um, given the scale of the military prostitution um, complex here. And so um, we also knew that one of the main arguments of sex trade expansionists is that, well, there's no other alternative. Da -dun -dun. Like that's like that's supposed to be the end of the conversation, which the logical <laughs> answer to that is, OK, well, let's make alternatives um, and let's give support, which is totally doable. And so that's what we did in Hawaii. And um, I want to clarify, though, that uh, you know, there were parts of the state apparatus and the libertarian sex trade expansionist movement here that align and worked, you know, hand in hand. And that the formal legislation wasn't what created this program. So they thought that they could derail um, legislation. But honestly, there was always our contingency plan of creating the program anyway. Like, you don't need a bill to create this in your government. I just want to be really clear about that. And that's one of the beauty, um, the beauties of having feminist anti-imperialist organizers spread out um, and building power throughout your community is that we were able to build this in government. And that's what we're doing now. So we're looking for non-legislative um, paths to create exit services all the time, regardless of the opposition. So, um yeah, I'll hand it over to Esperanza. But yeah, $2,000 a month is not enough, right? But it's far more than what general assistance is given by the state already. And that was one of the main arguments against giving even this type of support was that um, the government said it's an insane amount of money. Meanwhile, sex trade expansionists here in Hawaii said that, oh, it's nothing. Sex workers make so much more than that, that won't even make a dent. So don't even give it to them because it's a meaningless amount, $2,000 a month. So you had those two arguments at the same time against this effort. 
Yeah, and so just um, working off what Cara said, I just want to provide a little bit more context for what we at Affirm call the right to exit. So, you know, there are, you know, there's a, just a ton of data, pretty much every study that's been done on people in the sex trade um, has found that a majority of people, either one, um, they do want to leave but can't, or two, they don't feel like they have any other option to survive um, or to survive at a sort of, you know, humane level, right? Um, and so we consider the right to exit to be one of the most denied rights to women. Um, our founder, Ninochka Roska, she often cites, um, you know, the fact or the situation that happened with Kesha. You know, Kesha is a wealthy white woman but um, even with all of her privilege, you could say she was still unable to exit a legal contract with um, a man who sexually abused her. And so if we understand that if it's even happening to women with this amount of money that they are unable to exit um, abusive, uh, sexually abusive situations, then the situation for women without money, women who are oppressed on the basis of their race um, is even worse. And we see this particularly um, in systems of prostitution where people are not able to exit. We are gen generally stuck within it. And I've written a little bit on my own story how that was the case. Um, really, there's just simply no exit programs. But we also see this in, you know, situations of intimate partner violence, domestic violence, where there is no right to exit. And so we want to sort of reframe the conversation around, you know, this should be one of our primary goals as feminists is provide ensuring the right to exit for all women and all people of oppressed genders. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then just lastly, you know, there was a, uh, a survey um, study done in the state of New York, and there was um, there was only uh, I believe like forty six beds open to survivors of trafficking or prostitution, and only like seven of those beds were open to transgender women. So if you know how many survivors are in New York, you know that that number in general is just completely um, insidious. Um, but then you could see that, you know, when you sort of disaggregate that among, you know, trans people or other, you know, multiple oppressions, they're going to have even less of a right to exit or ability to do so. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you both for that. Something I think, Cara, that you had said, I, I read it in a, an article that, you know, their right to exit prostitution should be fundamental, right? Like every, everyone, I would assume, would support you know, the right to exit because people who don't want to be in prostitution shouldn't have to be there, you know? Um, and I think that's one thing about like the the quite liberal feminist discourse around this um, that really focuses on this idea of choice um, and kind of flattens the difference between sex work and any other kind of work because like being forced to have sex that you don't want to have when you want to exit. I mean, that that is materially different than being forced to do some other kind of job, right? And I think we do a really big disservice to, I mean, everyone in the trade um, and otherwise by kind of flattening those differences. I think that that can be quite insidious. Um, 
So thank you both for sharing that. Um, so I wanted to talk about uh, the history of the trade uh, and where it came from, because you often hear this refrain that prostitution is the world's oldest profession, um, which is not only quite misogynist, but also racist. Um, so could you maybe talk about um, when and how we saw the emergence of the trade historically, and then maybe comment on, you know, how did that that popular or that phrase become popularized? I will just do a seg to Esperanza then, because <laughs> I will say at a firm, the baseline for our membership is to investigate history and material reality. We cannot just conjecture about the what we think as the fantasy origin of the systems at hand. We require our membership to collectively go through a process of investigation. And so one of the key texts that we um, that have that is really informative to understanding the history of prostitution is um, is by Gerda Lerner and the creation of patriarchy. And she is a Marxist feminist historian um, who started that entire branch of history um, at a time when in the United States women were not even um, allowed systematic entry into education. And what she found was. Um, basically the opposite of the narrative that we've been told that in fact it, it wasn't some sort of sacred veneration of women but it was the beginning of the downfall of women um, was really the the point and the purpose of the institution of prostitution um, and that its uh, first iteration was in ancient slavery so I'll pass it over to Esperanza to, to get deeper into that yeah um so, you know, like Kara said, uh, part of the, you know, part of the um, ideological defense of capitalism and of patriarchal society is the idea that everything that exists today um, is just taken for granted as like a historical universal, right? <clears throat> like, um, you know, I hear people all the time, even someone on CNN told me um, in that, you know, interview they did with me where they sort of minced my words, but, you know, the, the um, host, Lisa Ling, was like, but exploitation has always existed. Like, how will it ever go away? And that's part of this, like, end of history narrative, right? Um, but sometimes among the left, we don't realize that we do that as well, but with women's oppression, um, or specifically with, like, sexual exploitation. So we know um, that, you know, the first mentions of prostitution were around 2500 BC. We know that um, prostitution arose, like Kara said, in ancient slavery, um, where, you know, societies were marked by um, enslavement, but also by patrilineal property relations. So um, a far more extreme version of patriarchy than what we would call um, our society today when we say it's patriarchal. Um, we know that women were the first form of private property and women were also the first slaves. Um, ancient slavery did not start with both men and women. It was first test, the methods of enslavement were first tested and perfected um, on women. And we know that with female slaves in particular, their enslavement was marked by sexual subjugation, right? Um, the appropriation of both their sexual and their reproductive capacities. And so there's often this idea when we talk of ancient prostitution to talk about it in terms of, well, actually, they were these sacred divine prostitutes and we need to sort of reappropriate um, or reclaim this like sort of divine feminine history. 
Um, but the reality is just so different than that. Um, most women were prostituted in and around temples, not because they were seen as magical or divine, but because the temple was an ideal site of commercial activity in these ancient societies. And most of the women prostituted in and around those temples were slaves. They were not free women. And even those so-called sacred prostitutes that were not slaves were still grouped with slaves in other aspects of the law. So for example, in ancient Assyrian law, in the regulations around veiling, so-called free women who were so-called sacred prostitutes were still grouped with enslaved women when it came to um, veiling laws. Um, and so we see prostitution as originating as one of the world's um, oldest forms of oppression. And therefore, as we uproot class society, uproot patriarchy, it is also going to be one of the things that has to fall with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much, um, both of you for that. I think, it, yeah, it's just so telling, I guess, um, that that phrase has been so popularized. And I often find that it's brought up in a very um, gendered way to kind of normalize this idea that selling sex to men <laughs> is just um, inherently women's work or yeah, just inherently part of like the feminine, um, which, you know, anything kind of essentializing like that can be obviously quite problematic. So yes, thank you. So the, the trade was born, born from the combination of patriarchy, private property, and slavery. Um, so I wanted to talk a bit about how it was um, spread around the world and institutionalized. Um, so could you talk a bit about its relation to colonialism and imperialism? And Paul in the comments asked uh, to go into like, what is the military prostitution complex? Um, so I know that's a, a really big question, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. Well, we don't have to reach back as far as um, ancient society to see exactly how prostitution developed through um, imperialism. So in Hawaii, uh, Hawaii is a very strong uh, case for the idea that prostitution is not natural at all. So uh, one could say that prostitution is relatively new in Hawaii. So as late as 1825, it was not a developed system here. And in fact, the prime minister in Hawaii, Queen um, Regent Ka'ahumanu, tried to stop the development of a sex trade here, along with other ali'i or um, native Hawaiian rulers. And the, the reason why uh, their efforts were undermined is because the very first U.S. naval vessel to come to Hawaii, the USS Dolphin, attacked uh, them and other leaders um, in Honolulu to oppose the ban against um, them buying women when they came here. And so um, this was a necessary component to having white men um, settle and colonize Hawaii was having um, a sex trade to keep them motivated, to keep local tensions contained so that, you know, rape wasn't rampant, you know, um, random, randomized rape wasn't rampant. Um, and this is a playbook that's been used from, um, you know, throughout conquest. But you can see today's policies still very much rooted and traced directly back to the policies of um, 
the British Empire. So the United States prostitution policy has always been two-pronged. There's been a U.S. colonial policy and then one for the home front, um, and they've been modeled after the British Empire. So um, I'll stop with that history for a second, though, and let Esperanza go. Um, yeah, so definitely, uh, you know, I think everything that Cara said, and I think additionally, um, you know, the global sex for profit industry as we know it today is largely a result of imperialism, militarism, and colonialism. Um, and so, you know, here on Turtle Island, it's a result of European colonization. Um, for example, in Northern California, we, um, you know, if you read, um, an indigenous people's history of the United States, you'll see how um, in particular indigenous women were forced into prostitution um, when their societies were destroyed. And of course they weren't simply being prostituted to indigenous men, but it was to um, white settler um, men, right? Um, but then we also see this around the world. So for example, in areas such as Thailand, where, um, you know, the U.S. invasion of different countries um, around Southeast Asia, um, you know, they developed military brothels around their um, military bases. And when um, the U.S. left, uh, those military brothels became the infrastructure for a sex tourism industry um, to develop. Um, and then, you know, when neoliberalism came around, um, we see neoliberal institutions such as the IMF and the World Bank playing a major role in expanding prostitution and sex trafficking um, across the, uh, the global south. And I don't know if you want me to go into that now or later, but there's just a few things about that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You can go into that now. Yeah. So, um, you know, again, so I just think using the example of Thailand is really, um, really important, right? Um, because the U.S. sponsored militarization in Thailand during their invasion of Vietnam. Um, brothels were established to service American soldiers um, when they were on so-called R&R from the Vietnam War. And while the soldiers might have departed around 1975, the infra infrastructure of prostitution that, that, that they created um, remained and it got turned for foreign sex tourists. So, for example, um, we know that, you know, while there were only like 200,000 international and domestic tourists visiting Thailand in 1960, the number increased to 800,000 in 1970 and 5 million in 1980. Um, and that tourism was an outgrowth of sex tourism. And um, it, it, you know, ended up contributing a significant portion to their GDP. Um, and then you have these institutions like the IMF um, and the World Bank, knowing that sex tourism is a bedrock, the core of the tourist industry in these countries, encouraging sex tourism under the guise of just tourism as a development strategy. And so on top of encouraging sex tourism as a development strategy, their structural adjustment program, their social welfare policies, and their loan programs ended up devastating these economies and pushing more women and more trans people into the system of prostitution. And so that's kind of how US imperialism, militarization, and neoliberalism kind of combined to create this global sex tourism, sex for profit industry that we know today. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is so insidious. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and also, I mean, minors as well, right? I mean, that's kind of a well-known thing um, as well, or that's what they're kind of known for is like sex tourism with minors, which is just absolutely appalling. Um, but yeah, I mean, as you've both talked about many times, like wherever there is militarism, US militarism, there is an expansion of the sex trade. Wherever there is war, there's an expansion of the sex trade. And so much of it is just to service these military personnel. Um, I did want to talk about sex tourism as well, because Kara, I know that in Hawaii, that's definitely um, a major issue. And I know that uh, recently you also, <clears throat> excuse me, um, held uh, or held an action where you laid out red dresses on a beach to point to the uh, the connection between um, the sex trade, sex tourism, and murdered and missing Indigenous women. So maybe you could speak a bit to to that. Yeah, in Hawaii, we actually call it militarism. So um, because we want to point out the fact that it is one system and one phenomenon. Um, but like Esperanza was saying, I want to just capture what happened in Hawaii. So um, here in Hawaii, you know, we, we, we basically had Germany, a German model, a regulated um, public health progressive model at that time to prostitution. So it was a licensure system. It was, you know, had inspections and all sorts of regulations that were directly um, decided by the United States Department of Defense or the War Department and Honolulu Police Department. So imagine having a legal, uh, legal prostitution and thriving legal sex trade. And, you know, in the spring of 1945, there were over half a million U.S. military, you know, servicemen who came through Hawaii at some point in that spring. And then all of a sudden it being criminalized on paper. Um, and at that same time, you saw Hawaii being turned into a brand for tourists. Hawaii became... Um, what it is at that time after World War II and after statehood, when the United States had, you know, full control over um, the territory to become now this destination point. And a lot of that was driven by that, you know, wave of massive wave of military men who'd come in through um, the Pacific during World War II. And so and one of them was my my white grandfather. Um and so at that time, um, the, a joke started that the, the state bird of Hawaii was the construction crane because so many hotels were being built. And one of the attraction points was, right, this um, idea of Hawaii and its women as this exotic, sexual, free, hyper, um, licentious place. Um, and that's why today what, you, what we see here is sex buyers, not only sex buyers coming here, but sex buyers who um, want to buy and perform sex acts that are much more violent um, than they would back home mm. because they have zero accountability here. It's the Vegas attitude of what happens in Hawaii stays in Hawaii. Um, and so we see um, military and tourists driving our sex trade. So there has been a study and approximately 30% of online sex buyers um, are military and tourists. That means though that 70, that's significant, but 70% right are not. Um, but what I would say there is that the, the big money is with military and, tur and tourists. 
And so they are they are the main drivers for trafficking because they are the most lucrative buyers um, for a number of reasons. Um, but when I say they also are really dangerous, the military servicemen here have a reputation for being the worst buyers. Like if if you talk to anybody who's been in the sex trade here, they you know any veteran veteran um, prostitute will tell you to avoid sex buyers who are military because they are very dangerous. Um, and also the last thing I will say is to that point that you raised about children. Um, you have men, right, who have no accountability here. They have no um, stake in our community and they feel like they can get away with more here than they would in their own community. And so, um, for example, there was one um, pedophile operation in the biggest one that we've ever had in the spring of 2019. And almost half of the pedophiles that were identified and caught were military. And a polygraph um, was given to all of them. And 100% of the um, polygraph tests showed that they had abused children before. And so um, we see, you know, our children and Native Hawaiian women in particular and Native Hawaiian children being the most vulnerable in Hawaii, being the most preyed upon by the military and by tourists. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing happened with COVID. We saw a drop in child sex trafficking because we saw a drop in Japanese um, tourists here mm-hmm. who primarily seek out um, you know, children um, and vulnerable young women. Wow. Yeah, that's absolutely, absolutely devastating. Um, Esperanza, I'm not sure if you have anything to say on on sex tourism and the politics of that or its ties to imperialism. Yeah, so um, just uh, a couple notes, which is that, you know, just as in ancient patriarchal slave societies, the mark of a female slave was her sexual subjugation. Um, Under imperialism, the mark of uh, a woman oppressed by imperialism is her sexual subjugation. And, um, you know, part of, you know, what imperialism does, um, you know, it's, we, we understand imperialism as the um, highest form of capitalism, right, the outgrowth of monopoly capitalism. But part of what imperialism also does is create this ideology of entitlement that um, those of us in the imperial core are entitled to looting the third world, looting the global south. We are entitled to the lithium in Bolivia, to the resources uh, across the African continent. Um, you know, but what it also creates is this attitude of entitlement towards the bodies of women and gender oppressed people um, and children. And that is often um, not talked about, but imperialist violence against women is sexual violence. Mm-hmm. I wanna, sorry, okay. if I may, I also wanna say too, is that, you know, the state, makes this all possible, um, the colonial state or the state of Hawaii. And a telling example is that we spend 400 times more to um, market Hawaii for tourists than we do on our statewide agency for women. Wow. Um, 400 times more. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, sorry. Sorry. And then just one final thing that I wanted to say about sex tourism is that it's also being promoted as a um, a sort of like innocuous, harmless thing. So I know, for example, there's one um, very popular 
um, extremely wealthy male streamer who talks about um, proudly being a sex buyer and specifically doing sex tourism in Germany. But I think yeah. even the, the worst talking, streamer ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And it's so so clearly like male chauvinism and male sexual entitlement. But like. Um, you know, that brothel that he visited in Germany, and Germany is obviously an advanced capitalist country, it's an imperialist country, but all of the women in that brothel were from poor Eastern European countries. And so you could see how sex tourism would not exist without poverty, right? And how imperialist men like that streamer take advantage of the poverty of those women to get what they want from them because they get off on having power over someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I was absolutely sickened by that. Um, but I'm glad that you um, you brought all of that up because I did want to talk about um, capitalism as well, because as you said, imperialism is the, the highest stage of capitalism. Um, so I wanted to talk a bit about um, the class makeup of buyers and the class contradictions between buyers and sellers and this idea of the reserve army of labor. Um, because I think this is all really, really important to understand. Um, and when it comes to sex tourism, I know that also recently, like bourgeois women have begun, uh, have begun engaging in that as well, going to like the Caribbean, um, Japan, other places and buying young boys. Um, so, um, while Johns are majority men and, um, you know, it's majority women being exploited, um, you know, people of all genders, um, from bourgeois classes are starting to engage in this stuff, which I think is really, really uh, problematic. But um, yeah, if, if either of you want to comment on uh, kind of the class characteristics involved in the trade. Um, I guess I could start off and then pass it off to you, Kara. So, um, so, you know, I think it's important to note that under capitalism, social relations are congealed behind commodity exchanges. And that's one of you know, the the core contributions Marx made to understanding capitalism, right? It's like a commodity exchange isn't just an exchange in between commodities. It's actually a social um, relation taking place, right? Um, and uh, those social relations don't happen on an equal basis. Um, there's a power imbalance, right? There are also power relations. Um, liberalism, however, has obscured these power relations and one of the ways that it has done so is with this idea, for example, of empowerment, which describes little more than fleeting feelings of being in control or enjoying something. You know, I love weightlifting. I could say weightlifting is empowering to me, but no matter how much, how many weights I lift, it's not going to change the amount of power I have in society or over the economic, political, social system that I'm embedded in. And so these concepts of empowerment need to be separated from under, from having a material understanding of what power actually is. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I started thinking about being in the sex trade and like class relations and contradictions, um, I realized that we have to make a distinction between the exploiting party and the exploited party. Um, and understanding ourselves as exploited does not mean that we're victims who need to be rescued by an imperialist NGO. It's just simply understanding, like, we are an oppressed, exploited group of people, and this is how you define our relationship. 
Um, but I believe that this contradiction between the buyer and what I would call the bot or those of us in the sex trade um, is always antagonistic because um, the buyer always wants more for less. Whereas those of us who are exploited in the sex trade, the bot, we always want to do less for more. And that um, those interests are baked into the material system of prostitution. It's not simply individual people can wake up and say, I want this, I want that. No, in general, these are our interests. And those interests are always antagonistic. And when that power struggle plays itself out over and inside of our bodies, sexual violence is bound to occur. Yeah, that was a great, um, that was a great summary. I mean, you know, empowerment is this kind of is self soothing at this point. And it is really odd that the left or American liberal left leans into and celebrates this idea of male saviorism and that, um, you know, really that the relationship is still, regardless of what legal model you put on it, whatever policy you put on it, that power imbalance under full deregulation or full decriminalization and legalization, that power imbalance doesn't change because you give maybe a little bit of power to sex workers or survivors or prostituting people, but you give even more power to buyers, then they're both, one, the buyer is still more powerful. Um, and this is corroborated by a lot of data. So it's not just theory and us, you know, theorizing about power differentials, but the majority of sex buyers in the United States are middle class or upper middle class or wealthy. Um, and we know this because when they get caught in Minnesota, for example, when buyers have been caught, they've analyzed who was able to hire a private attorney. 70% of buyers were able to hire a private attorney. That is very expensive. Um, most people are not going to be able to do that. And so um, there is a wealth of data that corroborates the power, the huge power differential, and um, the problems that continue to occur, the game doesn't change under full decriminalization. The game doesn't change under full legalization. That's why we see shockingly low rates of condom use and safe sex um, in Western Australia, which is taking on this libertarian um, position on prostitution. And it didn't turn out that SDI risk has been eliminated because people are still desperate and buyers still have more power. And so people are going to continue to feel the economic pressure, um, that economic gun at their temple to agree to things that are um, against their own health and safety. I think you're muted, Maxi. Thank you so much for letting me know. Um, I was saying, yes, absolutely. And um, Esperanza, I know that you've written about um, the dynamics of capitalism and the reserve army of labor and how, um, you know, patriarchy and capitalism combined um, by denying, um, you know, access to, uh, you know, jobs, uh, private property, everything to marginalized women, trans women, um, and more gender oppressed people, um, they become this reserve army of labor that is always available to be sexually exploited by mostly bourgeois men, right? Um, and even when it's not bourgeois men, it's, it doesn't make the exploitation any, any, less, um, any less real, right? Oh, sorry. Are you going to... 
Sorry. Yeah. Um, no, I was just going to say that. Um, yes, absolutely. And that's another thing about, you know, when we talk about the sex for profit industry, when we simply naturalize it as a God given in our society, what we're doing is basically giving the state and their corporate um, rulers uh, a free pass for not providing us with gainful employment um, not providing us with employment that is accessible by people with disabilities. Um, we're giving them a free pass for discriminating against transgender people, against um, Black people, um, for the rates of, you know, job discrimination and unemployment in uh, Native communities. Like, um, they need to address this. And instead, what they do is allow us to fall into um, the underground economy and specifically prostitution, where wealthy imperialist bourgeois men have an access to a reserve army of bodies that they can access when they want and we're trapped in that reserve army by poverty mm -hmm. and oppression yeah yeah absolutely um so this leads into what i wanted to talk about next which is the politics of buying itself um because i think that you know people listening or people in general maybe people who um, are more sympathetic to the kind of like liberal feminist um discourse around this can probably hear this and think, yes, you know, the military prostitution complex, that's bad. Sex tourism, we can see how that's imperialist and, you know, maybe unsavory. However, they might think that, um, you know, buying sex at home is just this value neutral act. And I've actually heard many leftist men, even ones that are quite, you know, fairly close to me that um, I would assume uh, had watched my video on this. Uh, but, you know, just making comments that buying sex, being a John is this kind of, yeah, this value neutral, um, you know, unobjectionable act. Um, and even this kind of twisted logic that like, oh, Johns are, Johns are providing work um, for sex workers, which we would never say that about a capitalist. We would never say like, oh, well, Jeff Bezos is providing work. Like, you know, uh, sweat, uh, sweatshops they're providing work right um so yeah i just wanted to talk a bit about the politics of buying and maybe you could comment on why you feel that um buying in general is a form of violence <laughs> um well you know the there's an obsession with consent that consent heals all um, and is the only thing necessary to determine whether harm will occur. Um, and this is, again, a, a narrative that we are all just willfully participating in capitalism. Um, and it's a delusion. And I think it might help for men to hear that I would consent to almost anything to, um, to protect my children or to allow my children to live. Um, but that doesn't mean that I want to. Um, and so I think we need to take apart, uh, we need to dis dislodge consent as the line between harm and no harm. Because having sex because you have to, not because you want to, is still very harmful, let alone all of the trauma that is so well documented that comes with prostituting. I mean, the higher levels of PTSD than Iraq war veterans, the, uh, you know, the damage to your reproductive um, 
internal system. I mean, we have we have um, survivors in Hawaii right now. One of our projects is how to get um, the ACOG, so the American um, Gynecologist OBGYN Association, basically College of OBs, to understand all the damage that's done internally to someone who's been through the sex trade to treat them, um, you, you know, to have appropriate services for people who survived the sex industry here. Um, so that's just my initial thoughts, but I'll let Esperanza develop it more. Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of times we talk about being in a rape culture, but I think that we need to, um, really analyze deeply what that means. And I think that when we talk about being in a rape culture, it's not simply that there is this you know, ideology um, that defends rape, there is, but there's also material institutions that anchor that rape culture in our society and give it validity. And I think that the sex trade is one of those institutions because it's built primarily around male sexual entitlement. Now, obviously, as you mentioned, there are other forms of sexual entitlement. So for example, we do see women from the imperialist countries buying sex from, you know, often underage boys. Um, who are poor and needing money in oppressed nations. Some academics even, um, you know, uh, justify this by saying that um, it's black male, that imperialist women are celebrating black male um, sexuality and that, um, you know, these men are entrepreneurs, even though they're the same scholar noted that these men are 15 and doesn't see the racism in um, how we see young men of color, specifically young Black men as adults, when they're not adults yet, um, that's an underage child. Um, but all that said, you know, the um, ideology around prostitution is one of sexual entitlement. I mean, never in my life have I ever looked at someone and said, um, you know, oh, this person isn't interested in me. Well, maybe if they need money bad enough, I could just pay them to pretend that they are. And that's really what the sex trade is. It's mostly men paying women and other men and often children to pretend to like them, to tolerate sex with them. And how can that not be a deeper part of rape culture when you understand that someone's material need to put food on their table, to put a roof over their head, to have a bed to sleep on, often to take care of their kids and their family, that you're exploiting that material need to get them to tolerate sex with you and pretend to like you. If you truly cared about the consent, about the well-being of the people that you are engaging in sex with, then you are going to want them to want you. And when you are just okay having sex with someone that does not want to have sex with you, but wants money and therefore will tolerate the sex for the ultimate goal of money, that is a huge manifestation of rape culture and buyers know that and they also you know i know we're going to get into trafficking but just to pr um, preface that conversation you know there was one study of, bu of buyers that found evidence that two-thirds of sex buyers were aware that the women they bought sex from were exploited coerced pimped or trafficked into prostitution and yet this knowledge failed to deter them two-thirds of sex buyers failed to deter them from buying sex anyways. They know what they're doing. In fact, anyone who's been in the sex industry 
um, that's listening will probably relate to me when I say, you know, when I used to talk to these men, a lot of them would say, you don't need to be here. Why are you here? You sound so educated. Well, what they're literally saying is that they're aware that the people they're buying sex from need to be there. They're mm-hmm. aware that they don't have other opportunities and they still don't care. They do it anyways. Yeah. Yeah. I want to I wanna throw in really quickly that also rape culture, right, is came to our homelands through Western colonization and sex buying is the highest form of the Western value system. It is the highest level of being alienated from yourself and it is the highest form of toxic masculinity. It is the opposite of the value system that was in place in places like Hawaii or the Philippines. Like in the Philippines, we have something called Kapwa, which is where you like intelligence is through feeling and noticing how everyone around you is feeling and feeling interconnected with other people. And so when you sever that, that is what you get, the ability to buy someone, the ability to make somebody give their own body up to you and to be able to colonize another body directly. And so it is really important just in order to save not just our communities, but literally the planet that we upend this value system that is manifested through sex buying and that we restore the value system of kapwa and interconnectivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, you know, like listening to, I guess, the liberal feminist discourse around this, um, it never sat right with me. Like I always felt this kind of pang of like in my stomach, like this feels really oppressive. Um, but I thought, maybe I'm just not understanding. Maybe I'm just not evolved on this topic. I obviously, like, maybe I just need to think more about it and I'll come around. Um, but the more that I think about it, the more that, yeah, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense because even this whole, uh, you know, the whole, um, idea of consent and how much we're talking about that, especially since the Me Too movement and how co- went, uh, consent should never be coerced. Um, it just completely falls apart when we talk about this industry. And for some reason, the industry gets a pass because because why people are profiting off of it or people think that it's a necessity. And there's no alternative. Um, so that doesn't make sense. Um, but but yeah, and I always thought that, um, you know, holding money over somebody's head and making them have sex with you to get it is one of the most violent things and dehumanizing things that you can do to another human person, whether or not you actually, you know, hit them um, or harm them in any any other way. Like it's it's to me that's so objectifying. Like if the work that you're making somebody slog through today is to have sex with you, knowing that they wouldn't be there otherwise. I mean, I I just I fail to see how that's not um, just extremely violent, um, just on the face of it, right? So. Um, I, I did want to talk about this difference between um, sex work and sex trafficking, because that's something that we hear a lot that, oh, but sex work isn't the same as sex trafficking. So um, I guess talk about, um, the, you know, if there is a distinction or, you know, how these things are very intimately related. Okay, I'll just um, say a few things and then pass it off to Kara. But, you know, um, one of the first things that I want to say is that oftentimes when I'm um, speaking about my own experience in the sex trade, I get a lot of people saying, oh, well, you know, you that's sex trafficking and you have to separate this from sex work. No, I was not trafficked. Um, the coercion and the violence that I experienced was not from sex trafficking. It was from the so-called system of sex work 
And so the first thing is that when people make these two separate buckets where there's sex work, prostitution on the one end, and that is free choice agency, and then there's sex trafficking on the other, and that's bad, what they're doing is one, creating a false dichotomy that doesn't exist. But two, they're also downplaying the coercion in non-trafficking prostitution. And that is deeply offensive to those of us who survived prostitution. And I say survive because so many of us don't. Um, just this year, I had another friend die of a drug overdose um, who was in you know, the pornography prostitution industry. And she was on drugs because of um, what you need to do to cope with that kind of lifestyle, you know, um, which is actually, sorry, another thing I wanted to say about buyers, which is that buyers know that most women, most of us in the sex trade tolerate sex with them through either dissociation or substance use and abuse. And the fact that they are still willing to do it when they know that we either have to be drunk or high or dissociate to have sex with them, that is extremely um sexually violent, right? Like that is a deep form of rape culture. But, um, you know, so, so it, you know, this distinction between trafficking and prostitution, um, it downplays the coercion in all of prostitution. But what it also does is purports them to be separate markets. And that's just not true. Economically, sex trafficking, as defined in its strictest legal terms, exists as a method to reap the highest profits from the global market of prostitution. Um, sex trafficking exists not as a separate market, but in the same market, because there's not enough willing participants to meet the high demand to buy sex. So you have to literally traffic people. Um, and then also, like I said earlier, buyers don't care if you've been prostituted or trafficked. They don't care if you've been exploited or forced into it by a pimp or a trafficker. They just want to get what they want to get. And that's why we know that two thirds of buyers were aware that the women they were buying sex from or trafficked and didn't care. And an even higher number don't even care to ask or to find out. Well, that was a full comprehensive overview. <laughs> but um, in case anyone's confused, I will, I will start with this um, because my background is in law. So they're legal terms of art, right? Prostitution or what they're trying to um, rename as sex work and sex trafficking are, are legal terms. And sex trafficking, as defined by federal law and state law, sometimes a little bit more expansive, is when you're, um, you know, prostituting because someone, a third party, has forced you through or, or um, you know, made you do it through force, fraud, coercion, or in, in some cases, intimidation. So it's an extreme form of recruitment. And the reason why there's sex trafficking and prostitution in law is because as someone in government, I can tell you the dominant ideology in government is radical capitalism. I am surrounded by capitalist extremists um, and they will not recognize economic coercion as a valid form of coercion. And that is why the only harm that they recognize is sex trafficking. And so they only recognize the most extreme form of recruitment. However, because there are so few people, prostitution is so dangerous, and there's so few willing participants, like Esperanza said, even though online it might seem like there's there, everyone's prostituting, <laughs> um, uh, it, 
they, you know, it's, it's, a, it's capitalism. They rely on the cheapest, easiest form of supply um, and the most vulnerable communities um, through, you know, what's often something that looks like domestic violence, actually, um, in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so this, when, when you're taking the position that, well, there's prostitution over here and there's sex trafficking over here, this, these black and white camps, you're taking the same position as the corporate state, as the capitalist state, um, and as the police, because they do not, um, want to extend any type of support or compassion for anyone who can't prove that high bar, which is really hard to prove, of being sex trafficked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is something like just another part of the um, the discourse that didn't really make sense to me because I was like, like you said, Esperanza, it is the same market, right? Like the same Johns are buying people who are being trafficked and who are prostituting themselves. Um, so if that demand wasn't there, like if there wasn't demand, like if there, if there wasn't this whole group of men willing to sexually exploit marginalized people who they know need to do this to make ends meet, then there wouldn't be sex trafficking at all. Right. Like if we didn't have, right. Like it's the same, it's the same market. So yeah. Um, thank you for, um, just talking about that false binary. Um, so I'm conscious of the time. I know, Kara, you have to go soon. Um, Esperanza, are you able to stay a little bit longer? Because I do have a few more things. Um, okay, but maybe we'll jump to um, the last thing uh, first. So this is definitely where the conversation might get a bit uh, or gets into controversial territory because um, uh, I think people will hear the word abolitionist and think that, you know, you just want to perhaps criminalize everyone or ban the trade or that you hate sex workers, um, even though Esperanza, as you mentioned, you have been a sex worker yourself. But I wanted to talk about your visions for social change. Um, so maybe you could talk about, um, you know, why you are abolitionist, what that means to you. Um, and Cara, I see you have the bodies back uh, symbol behind you. So maybe you could talk about the bodies back model of social change. Yes, thank you. So number one, Bodies Back is the an abolition model that is um, entirely geared towards decolonization and anti-imperialism. And there's a the second thing to say is that there is a huge difference between criminalization and abolition. And the third thing is that abolition is led primarily by people who have survived the military prostitution complex, complex directly and communities that are highly militarized and communities that are, you know, disproportionately impacted by the sex trade. For example, Native Hawaiians, Filipinos, um, and on and on. Um, and so uh, there is nothing at all that is swerf or um, exclusionary about abolition. And we um, have all eyes open on the limitations and the violence of the settler colonial state and its um, apparatus through the military and through the local military, our police departments. Um, and so we do not rely on those institutions to abolish what is um, a massive system, um, a global system. Um, so some of the, the prongs that we rely on instead, right, are like Esperanza explained the right to exit, creating a meaningful right to exit, um, focusing on how do you dissolve an institution um, that is rooted in culture, rape culture. So the answer to that is really, you know, education. Um, We need to program our children to to not be 
um, oppressive because, you know, I have kids in our public schools here and I just had like a, a teacher tell um, my one of my children um, in kindergarten at the public school near us to um, that he shouldn't be wearing a skirt. Right. So just the, the gender binary, that's, it's normal, right? That's, that's nothing. Um, it happens all the time in worst cases. Um, what we are doing to children in school and actually um, requiring them to fit into a binary and to um, perpetuate violence from a very young age against themselves and against each other um, and um, experiencing it normal is something that we have to actually build against. And we have to create a culture that views sex buying and sexism as lame um, rather than the opposite right now. It's like, cool. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of different components to this that also include demilitarization at the core. Because like we talked about, if we don't do that, then um, we can't dismantle the um, the sex industry at the local level as well. So instead of rattling off, I'll pass it over to Esperanza finally um, to get the last word on this. But those are just some of the key points that I would say about Bodies Back. And I would encourage everyone to um, look up Bodies Back through Affirm um, and our allies. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think that in our culture, because we live in a patriarchal culture, um, the stigma is always put on women in the sex industry, women in sex trade. And for that reason, it becomes very difficult to critique the sex trade because it's often conflated with a critique of women in the sex trade. On top of that, it's complicated by um, male leftists sometimes, um, who might have chauvinistic attitudes towards women and then conflate our feminist critique of the sex trade with um, some sort of moral failing of the women. So if you notice, like, I'll never say a woman objectifies herself. We are objectified by patriarchal society. Um, there is nothing wrong with doing what you need to do to survive, as long as you're not hurting others, right? Um, sorry, Cara, you went were you going to go off mute? Okay. So, you know, for um, women in the sex trade, um, there's nothing wrong with doing what you have to do to survive. Now, certain women end up to become the exploiter, owning porn companies, um, you know, prostituting other women, such as that woman, Maxine Dugan, who claims to be a sex worker herself, even though um, she ran a prostitution ring and she was a pimp and she would steal, I believe, 20 to 40 percent, I think up to 40 percent of the earnings of the women she prostituted. And they actually spoke out and testified against her because of how exploitative she was. But she pretends to be a sex worker. So like that is wrong. But just doing what you need to do to survive, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, instead, we should be asking, you know, the sex buyers why they're comfortable doing what they're doing, right? They know that this is an exploitative, great culture, and yet they're still taking advantage of that to gain sexual access to women who are poorer than them. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also just want to say that I think the idea of a three-way fight is really important. So, you know, um, sometimes our position is conflated with this sort of carceral position that, oh, the police are going to end sexual violence. If the police were going to end sexual violence, it would have been ended a long time ago. Um, I think that the police are our enemy. Um, the, the state exists as a tool of repression of one class over another, and the police and the military are the um, you know, armed wings of that state. 
um, the police do not want to decriminalize the women in prostitution because they believe that by arresting them, they can help them. So we are actually in an antagonism with the police. We just think that um, we have to have a three-way fight against one, the police and their state, but also against the sort of non-state um, private exploiters, such as, you know, the pimps, um, the corporate actors that profit from prostitution, etc. Yeah, I'll just throw in there too, right? With this three-way fight, we have multiple fronts because, you know, in climate change, for example, we wouldn't decriminalize corporate polluters, even though we don't agree with capitalism. We're not going to just um, deregulate exploitation. And the same should be said for this issue, like any other, that we cannot um, empower um, exploiters and the exploiter ex- exploiting class. Um, so that's our line on on that on that piece to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you both. Um, I will link to your website in the description below um, and the Bodies Back model because I think, yeah, people can look into that. It's really, really interesting. And um, yeah, I just think really important to, to take a look at. Um, so Kara, did you have to jump off at, at this time? I do. I just want to say it's possible, y'all. It is possible. Um, We're doing it. So please join the fight through Affirm. um, Follow Esperanza and all the great work that um, she's leading on and many of our other leaders. So thank you so much for having us from Hawaii, Mexi. Um, And see you you online. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming. Um, Yeah, this is really, really wonderful. And I will put um, Esperanza and Cara's uh, links below as well. I put your Instagrams, but I'll put your Twitters as well. I'm not on Twitter anymore, thank God. But <laughs> okay, thanks, Cara. Um, and thank you, Esperanza, for just, I just have a few more things that I wanted to talk about. Um, the first is this idea that criticizing an industry or criticizing the exploiters or the capitalists. Um, is the same as criticizing the workers because you hear that a lot. Um, or I, I got comments about that. Um, you know, people were like, Oh, if you're against Johns, then that means that you're against sex workers or you're not supporting sex workers. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think it's this really paternalistic attitude that people don't even realizing that people don't even realize they're reinscribing, but, um, you know, whenever, um, we perhaps get like right-wing comments on our critiques of corporations. We hear like, well, they're giving you jobs, you know, or how could you criticize capitalism? Capitalism gave you that iPhone, didn't it? And it's like, well, let's take a step back. You're doing the same thing, but with regards to the sex industry, right? Sex buyers um, are not giving us jobs. They're not giving us money. We're put in a dependent relationship on them. Um, You know, if a woman who was stuck in a relationship with an abusive husband who she has forced to be dependent on him, obviously she can speak against him. And the fact that she has to be dependent on him doesn't mean we should support him. So I think that, you know, it's really used to sort of um, uh, distract from a larger critique of the industry. And I think that this is pushed in large part by the industry itself, by the pimp lobby. Now, a lot of people will say the pimp lobby doesn't exist. My retort to that would be, aside from being able to actually trace and map it, can you please tell me which industry and capitalism the profiteers have not formed an association to represent their interests? 
every single industry has a trade association that represents the interests of the profiteers of that industry. And you think that the $99 billion global sex industry is the only capitalist industry without a lobby? Of course they do. And so they take advantage of the awakening consciousness of women currently and formerly in the sex trade to their um, position as oppressed and exploited people. And um, what they do is they then organize off of that to deflect any critique of the industry. So it's like, oh, you're critiquing the industry, then you're increasing stigma against the people who survive in it. And it's like, no, there's nothing wrong with doing what you need to do to survive, but we need to have a broader conversation about the impact of this industry on how women and people as a whole are viewed and treated. And I think that it's because, again, the commodification of sex, the commodification of human of parts of human beings, right? And prostitution is the commodification of our sexuality, our sexual capacity, as well as our bodies. That is going to have a harmful effect. And if we could talk about why we need to decommodify housing, water, food, land, we should also be able to talk about why we need to decommodify sex and our bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a great point. And yeah, it's you wouldn't say that for any other industry. Like you wouldn't say, um, you know, Amazon workers are being exploited. Um, but it, you know, there, but, but if we criticize Amazon, then we're criticizing the workers or something like that, or we need to support Amazon because we need to make sure that those workers still have jobs. Right. It's the same with like fast fashion and sweatshops or something like that. You wouldn't say, Oh, well, we need to support fast fashion because otherwise people working in sweatshops would be out of a job and that would be worse. You know, um, it is this kind of like hyper capitalist mentality. Um, and it, it's just really strange how, I mean, to me, like these things are clear, but again, it gets, it gets really lost in the mainstream liberal discourse. Um, and I, I just find it kind of stunning that nobody really brings that up or that these things are still being said, you know, over and over. Um, And then um, I did want to talk about this idea that um, like sex workers need to constantly out themselves in order to have a voice. Um, I know this is something that you and Cara have have mentioned, but um, you'll see online, right? I've seen so many threads where um, sex workers or people who were formerly in the trade are criticizing the trade and then you know, someone else will come in and say, well, I like the work or something like that. And then people will jump on that and say, well, you need to listen to sex workers. And it's like, well, which ones? Um, And, you know, again, like if, if we're talking about another industry, like Amazon workers, and then we had some people come up and say, well, I like the work, like, okay, does that actually change the systemic nature of the exploitation or the fact that we should probably be listening to the most marginalized? So what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. So again, the first thing is that, you know, what comes off as so patronizing to me is when I share the actual horror stories of what I went through in the sex trade, like just horrible, horrible things um, at the hands of sex buyers. And I'm told, and I, I listen to people tell other people that they shouldn't listen to that because there are some people in the industry who actually like their jobs. And it's just so funny because years of privileged discourse, and yet people cannot see the problem with focusing on the minority of people in the sex trade who have the privilege to enter and exit as they please, rather than the majority of people in the sex trade who are trapped in it and when they want to leave, have to choose between homelessness 
or shelter or the streets. Like that's not, you know what I'm saying? So, um, so, so that's one. Um, and then, uh, and then, um, sorry, could you repeat the question again? I think I got a little sidetracked. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, that's exactly right. it. And, and then, yeah, just this idea that people need to out themselves in order to have a voice on the topic. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another thing is that I really consider that to be a form of identity opportunism. So number one, um, I've had so many people, women in particular, um, come up to me in private and say, you know, um, I am also a survivor of um, systems of prostitution. And um, when I speak out about it, I'm called a swerf or said that I'm stigmatizing people in the sex trade or that I should shut up because I don't have, I've never been in it. And it's like, one, that is violence, right? Um, you have to understand, if you understand that there's stigma against people in the sex trade, then you should understand why people would not want to out themselves. Like this could literally affect their ability to find work, right? Um, to live, uh, you know, and it's also a very um, just sensitive part of yourself that maybe you don't want to share. Um, but then also there's this idea that in order to control the narrative, people have to continue closing the window of what is considered an acceptable identity to speak on something. So um, it was first, oh, you have to have experience in the sex trade. But then a bunch of survivors have been coming forward talking. And then it's, oh, you have to be currently in it. But then, you know, it, it's just continuously um, getting more narrow. And I think that at the end of the day, we cannot take this mechanical view of things. Um, the sex industry doesn't exist on another planet completely disconnected from us. It exists in relation and in um, interplay with everything else around us. And I think that, you know, this idea that if we have a system in society that commodifies the sexuality of human beings, that is going to affect other people who are not even in that industry. And I know because, you know, when I would be on dating sites, um, men who uh, did not assume I was an escort would offer me money um, for sex. You know, this is the system of commodification. Or um, how, how can you say that uh, every woman doesn't have a right to speak on the sex trade when if that woman loses her job because of a downturn in the economy, the sex trade might be the only thing she has to turn to. Is she only allowed to speak about it once she's pushed into it? Of course not. We should all be able to speak about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a great point. And I think actually me, Nick and Catherine were talking about this as well, that yeah, I mean, you know, each and every one of us have been propositioned, like, it doesn't matter if you're in the trade or not, you will still be um, objectified and treated as if, you know, your body and sex with you can be commodified, because we live in that culture, right? And like you said, it's so inculcated in, in rape culture itself. Um, and I found it really telling and really gross, actually, that um, when I actually lost my teaching job last year because of COVID, um, I had posted about it on my YouTube channel. And I had men commenting, like, certain OnlyFans, you should start an OnlyFans and whatever. Um, and I blocked them, like, I was so angry. Um, but I remember thinking, like, the discourse has gotten so like liberal individualists that I can't even, I felt like I couldn't even publicly say like, fuck you, you know, like, fuck you guys. Um, that's so uh, disrespectful. 
because then people will be like, oh, like, well, what's, what's the problem with OnlyFans? What's the problem with that? And it's like, again, like, yeah, like you said, there's nothing wrong with doing what you with what you need to do. Um, but the fact that like these men obviously knew that I'm in this position because I've just lost my job. So, oh, start an OnlyFans. Like I have a Patreon. You could contribute to my Patreon. But no, you want me to do something sexual for you, for you to support me in any way. You know, it's just so sick. Yeah, no, it's it's totally coercive. And again, based around this idea of sexual entitlement and using poverty as a backdrop for that sexual entitlement. And, you know, I think, too, just on the earlier question, um, another thing is that, you know, the sex for profit industry, which includes pornography, affects every single person because most people receive their first sexual education from pornography. And again, like my um, my thing about sex as well as about, you know, sexual imagery and video is that it's okay if it's actually decommodified and if it's not coercive, um, you know, if it's consensual and, um, you know, viewed by adult viewers, etc. So like, I don't think there's anything wrong with sending a photo of yourself to someone or getting off on it, etc. But when there's a profit motive behind these things, they become very dark and very violent and very coercive. And so when we talk about like the sex for profit industry, every single person has a right to talk about it in our society because the sex for profit industry drives how people in general see sex, see women, see men and men's bodies and their own bodies. And that's something we should have a conversation about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I actually have a quote um, from you here that you posted on Instagram that I think is awesome. <laughs> if you don't mind me reading it. Um, uh, yeah, we didn't even talk really about the porn industry today. I feel like we would have to do like a totally new stream about uh, the porn industry because that too has a very disturbing history and is mired in a lot of pretty disgusting contradictions. Um, but you said porn is ideology. Porn disciplines your mind into capitalist patriarchal ideology. It ingrains sexual violence and commodification into our psyches and tells us what and tells us that's what sex looks like and feels like. Porn is dehumanizing. It starts by separating intimacy from sex, severing the complex experience of the erotic to reduce it to its most transactional commodifiable form. That's why we need to abolish the porn industry. Consenting adults should be able to post and trade content on platforms that actually verify their age. But the moment it has a profit motive behind it, the idea of consent vanishes. There can be no consent when there is economic incentive or pressure to engage in sex. Um, and then you said that it must be destroyed, every brothel, every porn company, um, and the wealth generated from it should be expropriated and paid as reparations to those of us that survived. Um, and I thought that was absolutely awesome. Um, and it's so true, like this kind of ties into something I was thinking about before is this idea that a lot of leftists, especially leftist men, will say things that are, are like, well, even if we had some kind of post-capitalist revolution and we're living in this new utopic society, we would still have the sex trade. Um, and I was just like, why, <laughs> you know, why, why would we still have a system of coercive exploitation? I mean, there are so many ways that we can think about being horny together in ways that are decommodified, um, even if they are communal, right? Like you can like orgies, sex parties, cuddle puddles, like whatever, right? Um, or just, yeah, the, the free trading of these things completely divorced from any kind of economic coercion. Like, why wouldn't that be? what we're talking about in terms of uh, some kind of revolution, right? So I just, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but 
Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree with you. And, you know, a lot of people try to paint me as like a sexual Puritan, but I mean, it couldn't be further from that. I just think that for sex to truly be liberated, we have to liberate it from one, the control of the state, but two, from the control of the market. And a lot of people think, oh, we just have to liberate it from the state, but it's okay if mark the market and private corporate actors control it. And it's like, no, that's not liberated sex then. But, you know, in terms of that whole debate about, oh, like, you know, will the sex trade exist under socialism? I mean, okay, so socialism is where you move away from commodity production. It's where we are attempting to um, stop our labor power from being a, a commodity that we have to sell to the capitalists to survive. So you're saying that our labor power will stop being a commodity, will stop, um, you know, will move away from commodity production but yet our sexual capacity and our bodies will still be commodities like that just makes no sense but it does make sense when you realize that women's oppression is is really the oldest oppression the first class oppression was the oppression of women and therefore it's also the most ingrained in our psyches in our culture in our society and Mm -hmm. so people can envision a post-capitalist world but they cannot envision a post-patriarchal world Yes, yes. I've actually said that many times. Yeah, they can't, they can't imagine it. Um, And yeah, I I think it's also really telling that, um, like, people will kind of justify that even this idea that, oh, yeah, it'll happen in in our kind of post capitalist world. um, Because they'll say that, oh, well, there's always going to be a demand, basically, because there's always going to be men who are, you know, not very socially inclined or will have trouble getting dates. And therefore we need to have a reserve army of labor of people of all genders to service them sexually. Um, One thing that I find really upsetting is the way that people talk about disabled men and use disability as, as a justification for this, that because disabled men exist, therefore we need to have this entire industry to service them. Um, this is not only extremely ableist, but also extremely misogynist because you never hear, you never hear them say, well, what about disabled women? There are disabled women. So we need to have uh, a whole system of, uh, you know, reserve army of labor to service them sexually. You never hear that. It's the opposite. It's, well, we need to have the sex industry so that disabled women can make money. Um, so basically they have to sell sex in order to, survive whereas we need to have this industry to service disabled men and i mean one of my closest family friends is a quadriplegic man um and you know i'm not going to say that relationships aren't difficult for him and that he doesn't face discrimination and ableism but he still dates he still has sex you know like he would never need to pay someone or he would never want to pay another marginalized person to you know, service him sexually. So I just find that to be like extremely ableist and extremely misogynist. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I would hope that in this, whatever post-capitalist society we're imagining, we would completely move beyond the commodification of this. Um, especially because like the porn industry and things like that, like when you add, um, that profit motive, I, it leads to like so much of the porn industry is racist. It's extremely misogynist. It's extremely objectifying and male gazy um, and things like that. And that's because of the market, right? Like I, I don't even know what what it would look like if it wasn't 
if there wasn't a profit motive behind it. So yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts on any of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, on the disability issue, um, I think that it's really telling that, like, instead of talking about how we can attack ableism at its root and the social factors that deny people with disabilities um, intimacy and love and sexual relationships that are often afforded to able-bodied people, instead we attempt to reinscribe this system of male sexual entitlement um, as manifested in the system of prostitution to serve them. And I, I think that that's, you know, no, let's attack ableism at its root and let's figure out how to uproot this disgusting ideology that sees people with disabilities as unlovable, as, you know, non-sexual, like that's what we need to attack. Um, but then I also think that, you know, talking with many survivors who have disabilities, one of the things they always mention when this conversation comes up is that they were disabled through the sex trade. Mm -hmm. The sex trade is disabling both physically and mentally in many different ways. So on one hand, you have people, for example, who are denied disability benefits. Maybe their um, disability is not seen as legitimate by the state, or maybe the benefits that they are given are not enough to support themselves. And then they're pushed into the sex trade to do that. So that's a problem. And then mm -hmm. the second problem is that, like I said earlier, the sex trade itself is disabling. Um, you know, even to this day, I have my own issues dealing with the way that, you know, the sex trade has um, impacted my ability, right, um, specifically mentally and psychologically to carry out everyday functions. There's also people who have been physically disabled through the sex trade. And centering on male sexual entitlement as a disability justice issue erases all of the women who have been pushed into the sex trade because of disability and who become disabled through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's incredibly well said. So thank you so much. That's that's all of the questions that I have. Um, Emma asks, um, maybe we can kind of end on this. Um, they want to know or some advice on moving towards this society in terms of organization and dual power building. Um, so, uh, so I'm going to be honest, I'm not too sure if I could speak on the um, dual power building aspect, but what's the question sort of how we move beyond this yeah. How do we move to towards this? Like, I mean, I guess post-capitalist society is like a big one, but, you know, towards this more progressive, more liberated um, kind of a society in terms of um, sex and sexuality. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, I don't have the final or, you know, total answer to this question. Mm -hmm. But what I can contribute to it is that I think one of the most important things is that we do get organized. Um, you know, we are obviously seeing the rise of the fascist right in this continent, but also all around the world. Um, and part of what they're doing is really... Um, this sort of backlash against any um, small progress that women and gender oppressed people have made in our own democratic rights. Um, and part of that, you know, um, is again, just really putting women back in their place um, in all senses of the word. We have to remember, you know, that um, the preservation of the sex trade was originally a Christian idea promoted by, um, you know, St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. Um, and so, you know, the, 
I think that what we're seeing right now is sort of an anti-feminist, anti-woman backlash. Um, and that is going to have implications both inside and outside of the sex trade. And I think that the best way to combat that is by getting organized and organizing other people into real life on the ground fights against perpetrators of patriarchal violence, including corporate actors and state actors, and holding them accountable um, you know, for things such as the right to exit, et cetera. Um, and I think that, you know, in terms of like building mutual aid projects and things like that, I think they can be helpful. Um, for example, like, you know, we know that the state is never going to fully guarantee the right to exit. So we could, you know, develop programs that can help women in the sex trade trying to exit, but they also have to be political programs that don't just help people, but organize them to be agents of actual change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that was amazingly said. Um, so thank you so much. This was such an incredible conversation. I'm so glad that we were able to have it on this platform. Um, I'm just very grateful to you and Kara. I will definitely put, I've already put some links in the description box below, but I'll put more links to um, you guys on Twitter and to Affirm and everyone can check out the amazing work that they are doing and follow them on social media because it's, yeah, it's incredible. Um, it gives me life. It gives me hope. <laughs> um, and yeah, just thanks again for coming on. Yeah, and thank you. And it's, it was a bit surreal because in the beginning of the pandemic, I found your um, channel and really started listening to you. And I appreciate you so much and all of the education and work that you do. And it was just really nice to be able to actually talk to you on live. So. Wow. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you so much. So yeah, this is definitely, uh, definitely huge for me too. Um, so thank you again. Thank you everyone for watching. Um, and it'll be up still live on the channel. So if anyone um, thinks that they know anyone that they would, you know, would benefit from hearing this, please do share it around. I think it's an important conversation that a lot of people should should be hearing. So thanks again. And uh, we'll see you all next time. Mm -hmm.